0: This is our third night looking at Paul's epistle to the Colossians. So let's take a moment and think back to what we've seen so far. First, uh, after his greeting, Paul has thanked God for the gospel and the fruit that that gospel has produced in Colossae. That was verses three through eight. Then two weeks ago, in verses nine through fourteen, we walked through Paul's prayer for the church that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in order to live lives that are fully pleasing. And in the final section of that prayer, verse 14, if you remember, Paul included a statement about the redeeming work of Christ. Well, that theme continues into our passage tonight. In verses 15 through 20, we find a poem that Paul has composed that proclaims Christ's authority over both the first creation and the new creation. Then in verses 21 and 23, he shows the Colossian church that they, this little unassuming group of believers in Asia Minor have been caught up into God's cosmic plan of redemption. So let's read now verses 15 through 23 of Colossians 1. Listen carefully and give your full attention to the inspired word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the holy scriptures. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, your word remains forever. And we ask you to bless it to our hearts this evening. Amen. Now, I've only been to the principal's office once in my school career. I think it was in fifth grade. And I don't remember all of the details surrounding the situation, but to the best of my recollection, the story goes something like this. I'm sitting in class one afternoon doing math worksheets or whatever it is, and the classroom phone rings. My teacher picks it up. She says, hi, Mr. Allison. That was our principal's name. And then says, okay, and hangs up. And then to my dread, she says, my name, Gavin, Mr. Allison needs to see you in his office. My stomach dropped. I had no idea what I had done wrong, but it must be bad. So I walk down to the principal's office, knock on the door. He says, come in. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm walking in to present myself before him, unholy, guilty, and reproached. My heart was pounding out of my chest, and my palms were probably close to dripping with sweat. But as it turns out, I was called there not as an offender, but as a witness I was asked to give testimony regarding some bullying that had been going on in my class. So I was relieved. I was found not guilty. So tonight in our passage, we'll see another presentation before an authority. But this time, it's not an elementary school principal. In this case, the authority, the judge, is God himself. And what we'll see is this. That Christ, the sovereign Lord over all things, has reconciled a people for himself in order to present them not guilty before the throne of God. So as I said earlier, uh, verses 15 through 20 of this passage are a poem that Paul wrote highlighting the supremacy of Christ. And if you take a look at the notes sheet, you'll be able to see that poem, uh, hopefully uh, large enough where you can read it. Um, And it's laid out kind of in a more visually helpful way because there are five different sections and some of them parallel one another. So it's sort of arranged like a sideways pyramid, and the turning point is right in the middle. So sections one and five parallel one another, and you can see the parallel terms highlighted or in bold for you. Sections two and four also parallel one another. And then the third section is right in the middle and it stands on its own. So in addition to those parallels, which again are in bold for you, you can see that everything in the first two sections has to do with first creation, and that will be our first point tonight, Christ over the first creation in verses 15 through 17. Then the last two sections, verses 4 and 5, have to do with the new creation, which will be our second point. Christ over the new creation in verses 18 through 20, and then finally our third point for the evening, we move outside the poem and look at the reconciliation that all of this points to in verses 21 through 23. So let's get into looking at verses 15 through 17 and Christ over the first creation. Let's start by reading those verses again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In these three verses, Paul identifies Christ as In several different ways. We'll see how Christ is the image, the firstborn, the creator, and the goal of all creation. So the first thing Paul says here is that he, his pronoun he, is the image of the invisible God. And the obvious question is, who is that he referring to? Well, it points us back to verse 13 and the beloved son of God. So Paul's talking about Jesus, but what is the significance of the term image? Well, Paul has already referred us back to Genesis 1 in Colossians a couple of times, for example, in verse 6, and I think it's likely that he's doing that again. We know that Adam was created after or in the image of God. But in this passage here in Colossians, Paul is taking us back before Adam was created and before anything was created. Christ was the image of God. Before Adam was made after that image, he was the original and perfect blueprint after which the human Adam was to be made. The human Adam was to reflect the image of God. Well, Christ is himself that very image. That is to say, he perfectly matches God in his essence, in his attributes, in every way. Jesus Christ is God. The next way Paul identifies Christ is also there in verse 15, and he says that he is the firstborn of all creation. So what does this mean? I think in isolation it can almost be troubling, maybe it sounds off to us. Is Paul saying that Christ was the first created being? Not at all. The word firstborn actually carries the ideas of priority and authority more than time. And this relates to the concept of uh, you may have heard of it called primogeniture, uh, which is a great spelling word for any kids in the audience, primogeniture. It basically means that the firstborn son of the family was considered the rightful heir to all of his father's estate. And we see this in many cultures and many times and places, some even today. And related to the inheritance of the wealth and the possessions of the father. The firstborn son also inherited patriarchal authority over the family. This is something we see very clearly in Genesis 27. When Jacob tricked his way into receiving Esau's blessing as the firstborn, Isaac said these words to him, which are recorded for us in Genesis 27-29. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down. So he received not only the rights to Isaac's property, but also the right to become leader of the household. So what Paul is doing by invoking this concept of primogeniture, by calling the eternal son of God the firstborn of all creation, is acknowledging him as the rightful heir and ruler of all things. Thus a good translation to convey this idea would be firstborn over all things, or all creation. is is higher than the rulers of the earth or the angels in heaven, because he is the one created them. Now we don't have time to get into all of it here and now, but as you probably are aware, this phrase in Colossians 1.15 has been seriously misused throughout church history. Uh, early on the heretic Arius used this verse to support his claim that there was when the Son was not, that Christ wasn't God, but was actually the first created being. And as you know, this heresy is still with us today in, in Mormonism and the watchtower society. But as with so many mistakes and false teachings, the answer is right there for us in the context. If you look ahead at verse 16, we find that the reason the Son is called firstborn of all creation is because by Him and through Him and for Him all things were created. So it's clear in this passage that Christ is on the Creator side. Of the creator creature divine. The Son of God, both before and after the incarnation, is fully divine. So now we're on to verse 16, looking at Christ the Creator. In this verse, Paul explains again the reason why he has used these terms image of God and firstborn. It's because Jesus is the Creator of all things and he existed before all things. And we see Paul gives four examples of things Christ has created. Thrones, Dominions, Rulers, and Authorities. And the best way to interpret these four terms is as four references to angelic beings, whether good or evil. So, Thrones refers to those angels who are seated in the divine council, in the heavenly court or throne room. This is a picture we see often in the book of Revelation and other apocalyptic literature. And then dominions also refers to holy angels. It serves as a synonym for thrones. And then the third and fourth terms, rulers and authorities, these words Paul often uses in his letters. And every time he uses them, he refers to demonic powers. And the same is the case here. So thrones and dominions are heavenly angels, and rulers and authorities are fallen angels. But why would Paul pick these examples as things Christ has created? He's just said... Christ is the creator of all things. So why not talk about the natural wonders of the world or, or animals? Well, we have to remember the purpose of his writing and the false teaching that was facing the Colossians, this Jewish mystical teaching. So the first point would be regarding the thrones and dominions. Christ is the creator and the ruler over heavenly angelic beings. Therefore, it would be foolish to spend your time trying to make this heavenly journey up to the throne room of God and witness the way those angels worship. Instead, you should be focusing on who they're worshiping, the eternal Son of God. Paul's second point regarding the rulers and authorities is that the Colossians should not be led astray by the false teaching because Christ is the creator and ruler over those demonic powers that were behind the false teachers. Christ is the creator of all and therefore the sovereign over all. All cosmic powers, whether good or bad, are subject to him. Finally, just as he is the image, the firstborn, the creator, Christ is also the goal of all creation. Look there at the end of verse 10. Paul says that all things were created for him. God has set up the entire universe for his own sake. From beginning to end, From the first day of creation to history's end, at the second coming of Christ, the goal is singular, to bring glory to Christ and to God the Father and to the Holy Spirit. Now, try to take yourself back, if you can, to the Colossians situation. This is only a few decades after Jesus' ascension. Christianity was far from an established or even legal religion, uh, let alone a cultural given as it is in ours. How amazing, perplexing, and astounding would it have been to hear for the very first time that this Galilean carpenter, who was crucified, shamefully executed as a criminal by the Roman government, is the goal of all creation. That's amazing. Let's pray that that would never cease to amaze us and would always drive us to worship. Well, now with verse 17, we come to the second and third sections of Paul's poem, where he continues to explain the ideas of Christ as image and Christ as firstborn. The phrase, he is before all things, section 2, is basically interchangeable with firstborn of all creation. Again, the point is that Christ was divine before creation. He was the sovereign king of creation from its very start, And he will continue to be the sovereign king of all creation until the very end. Again, we come now to the very center of Paul's poem, section 3. And that connects the first two sections. So the first two sections are all about the old creation. The, The last two are all about the new creation. And this is sort of the hinge point of his poem. And the point is that all things hold together, both in creation and redemption Christ is supreme. He constantly maintains the first creation, ensuring that everything through his providence doesn't descend into complete disorder. And he also constantly sustains his people, preserving them through his grace. So, let's move on now to the last two sections where Paul focuses his reader's attention on Christ over the new creation. So the reason Paul has been spending this time talking about Christ over the first creation is because he's going to revisit these same ideas, but this time in relation to the new creation. So just as the Son of God is the divine king over the first creation, he is now and forever the divine human king over the new creation. So in these next three verses we'll see Christ as the head, Christ again as the firstborn, as the temple, and then finally as the reconciler. And the first parallel is there in the fourth section. He is the head of the body, of the church. Now, in this context, it's best to see the word head conveying the idea of authority. So, very similar to what we observed in the first section. Just as Christ has authority over all creation because he is its creator, he also has authority over his church. But what is the church? Is it just those gathered to hear this letter read in Colossae? Well, with Paul, usually the answer would be yes. Most of the time, he uses this word church. He's referring to the local gathering of believers. But here, the context makes it clear that something much bigger is in mind. This church, this body Paul is talking about, is what we confess in the Nicene Creed as the holy Catholic church. In other words, this church is universal, including every person who has belonged, everybody who currently belongs, and every person who will belong to Christ in all times and all places. The scope of his authority over his new creation people is limitless. He is the king of us all, whether in Colossae, Ephesus, Rome, Oceanside, or anywhere else. And the next parallel we see is in the second part of verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, That in everything he might be preeminent. This parallel is perhaps a bit more obvious than the first. Christ as the beginning strengthens what it means that he is the head. It speaks to the fact that he's both in a position of authority over his church and the fact that he was the first human to be resurrected. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Upon his resurrection, the new creation order was initiated. I wonder if we truly understand the magnitude of that event. By raising Christ up from the dead, God not only defeated death, but made possible eternal life for his people. The resurrection changed everything. And the same power that raised God's Son up from the grave comes to us through his gracious hand and to all who believe. We are part of the new humanity, new creations with a new covenant head, Jesus Christ, who is nothing less than the very image of God, the exact radi- the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature. Once again, what an amazing truth that we should pray never ceases to amaze us. But what's the purpose of the resurrection? Why does it matter that Christ is the firstborn from the dead? Well, Paul gives the answer Right here at the end of verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus' status as the the first member of the new creation is intended to prove that he is sovereign over all things. From the moment he was raised from death, he was made the king over all, even those that do not recognize his authority. Now, let me say this. This This is a great place for a quick but crucial Christological note. Jesus' resurrection brought him a supremacy that he did not possess thus far in his human nature. In his divine nature, it was impossible for him to gain anything in the way of supremacy, authority, preeminence, etc. But Jesus, in his human nature, by virtue of his resurrection, gained the supreme authority that he had always had as the second person of the Trinity. Well, now we're ready to go on to our next parallel in verse 19, where Paul says that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in parallel to the first section, just as Christ was the image of the invisible God at the beginning of the old creation, so also the fullness of deity dwelt in him at the beginning of the new creation. Now, this idea of the fullness or the presence or the glory of God dwelling in a specific place brings out these rich Old Testament connections of the temple and the tabernacle. For example, let me read Psalms 68, 16, and 17. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount in which God is well-pleased to dwell? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, Thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. This sanctuary or temple in Psalm 68 is fulfilled in Christ and applied to him here in Colossians 119. He is where the full presence of God dwells. Paul's big idea is this God's presence on earth is no longer focalized in the holy of holies, in a physical earthly temple. Instead, it was focalized in Christ, in Jesus, the God man on earth who fulfills everything that the temple stood for. And now, even after his ascension, the Holy Spirit continues to maintain God's earthly presence through the church, the body of Christ, the true and new temple of God. And that leads us right into Paul's next point. Look with me again at verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is where we find the last parallel with the first section. Just as Christ created all things in heaven and on earth, so also will he reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. Christ has already begun to restore the fallen world, namely through saving a people for himself. And as we saw with the last verse, because Jesus is God's true temple, he is the only one who is able to facilitate God's peacemaking presence to all creation, whether things on earth or things in heaven, Paul says. Now, let me be clear. This does not suggest any kind of universal salvation, but it does suggest universal peace. When Christ returns at the end of history, everlasting and all-encompassing will be achieved, because he will return with a flaming sword, conclusively judging all evil and putting an end to wickedness. But even now, all the hostile demonic powers have been defeated, and though they continue to exist, there's no chance that they can stop God's plan of reconciliation. So how did this defeat take place? How is reconciliation accomplished? through the blood of his cross. This phrase brings the cosmic drama down to earth and reiterates that it was a shameful death that accomplished this thing of universal consequence. Again, with the situation of the Colossian church in mind, this bloody reference to the crucifixion of Christ is Paul's way of reminding his hearers that the earthly realm is vital to God's eternal plan. Salvation was accomplished once and for all in a place outside of Jerusalem, on a hill, on a Roman cross made of wood, physically and bloodily. Therefore, we see again the foolishness of trying to escape from earthly things through ascetic practices and and being preoccupied with these heavenly visions. God made matter, he likes it, and he uses it for his purposes and to achieve His cosmic reconciliation. So we've come to the end of Paul's poem about Christ over all things. And now in verses 21 through 23, we see how he applies those truths of Christ's all-encompassing reconciliation to the church in Colossae. Specifically in verse 22, Christ died in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. On Judgment Day, our salvation will be complete as we are raised to everlasting life, glorified and presented, not guilty, before the throne of God. The effect of Christ's status as sovereign and supreme over all things is personal. It is to reconcile sinners to God and make them fit to dwell in His holy presence forever. So let's look carefully at this next section, starting actually not with verse 21, but with verse 22. And first we see that believers are reconciled. So we've already spent a few moments thinking about what it means that all things are reconciled to God through Christ. But what does that entail for God's chosen people? Well, the word reconciled for Paul draws on these Old Testament backgrounds of the restoration prophecies, Israel's restoration from the Babylonian exile. And if you were to gather together all these restoration prophecies and examine them, you would see that one of the major themes was a constru- the construction of a new temple in Israel where the formerly exiled Israelites could return and worship and participate and know God's peaceful presence. In the Gospels, we see these prophecies fulfilled. Jesus alludes to this temple aspect in John 2 when he talks about the temple of his body, being destroyed and then raised up again in three days. And then as far as the, the exile aspect, we see it in the cross. When Jesus, the true Israel, was crucified, he experienced an unimaginably painful exile from his father. And then when he was raised from the grave, upon his resurrection, he experienced ultimate restoration into his father's intimate peaceful presence. And the good news Paul is telling the Colossians and the good news for us this evening is that all who respond to that death and resurrection in faith can share in God's peaceful presence and experience the same restoration and reconciliation. So, what was the exile that we were rescued from? This is an important question because to fully appreciate where we've been brought to this place of ...God's peaceful presence. We have to understand where we came from. And that's what what Paul informs us of in verse 21. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So the Colossians were alienated from God. And basically this means the opposite of reconciling. They were separated from his peaceful presence. They were professed enemies of the true and living God. Whether they professed out loud their words or with their actions. They were lovers of self and worshippers of idols. They were opposed to God's will and to his word. That's why Paul says they were hostile in mind. Their minds needed to be renewed and remade. And nothing else but the power of God in Christ could accomplish that and meet that need. Only he can replace the sinful and stony heart of humanity with a heart of flesh. Only he can put an end to the constant practice of evil deeds, the wicked sins that we love and cherish. Only God can save us from that state. And that is what he has done for you and for me and for all who believe in Christ. You were once a professed enemy of God. You exalted yourself above him. You worshiped the idols that you fashioned with your own hands. In the depths of your heart, You were opposed to everything good and pleasing to God. But thanks be to God. He has given you a new heart and a new status and a new mind. Christ has reconciled you. You are no longer his enemies. You have been brought into a place of profound presence, of profound peace in the presence of God. But how has this reconciliation been accomplished? By what means have we been restored? Paul says it's by Christ's death in his body of flesh. Now, this time, Paul's not referring to the universal church as Christ's body, but he's referring to the physical body of Jesus. It was his real flesh and blood corpse which hung from the cross after bearing the penalty of the sins of his people. Through his body, he satisfied his father's wrath. Obliterated death and demolished the devil and his works. The physical body of Christ ensured that all saints in all times and places would have everlasting peace with God. Now let's revisit those last words of verse 22 as we look at the goal of reconciliation, which is to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. Brothers and sisters, this is the heart of our passage this evening. And the language we find here is sacrificial language that draws our minds back to the sacrificial system of the Sinai covenant. But in this new and better covenant, Christ is the high priest. And the ultimate sacrifice he offers is not a spotless lamb, but himself. Because of his sacrifice, his people who were once alienated and hostile, delighting in wicked deeds are transformed into holy and acceptable sacrifices. Brothers and sisters, you are a pleasing offering in the Lord's sight. You are no longer His enemies. And this is true now and in the future. Right now, though we still sin and lead lives that are far from perfect, God sees you clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. And in the future, as Dr. Horton talked about this morning, we will actually be presented before Him brought into his presence, clothed in pure white, a truly glorified and entirely sanctified people. This is our future. It's really going to happen. One day we really will be raised physically from the grave and made like Christ, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Well, now we come to the final verse of our passage. Verse 23. And here, Paul introduces a condition. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In other words, Paul is telling his hearers that all of these blessings he's been talking about in the last five verses, all of the benefits of Christ are theirs, if... They continue in the faith and believe the gospel that he is a minister of. Now, there are some who disagree, but it seems clear in the context here that the faith Paul is talking about is not faith in the doctrinal sense. That is, it's not the content of faith. Instead, it's faith as the act of the believer. The wholehearted trust that the Christian has in Christ. Persevering in this trust, he says results in receiving the benefits of Christ. Now, this is uncomfortable for us to hear, but Paul's point is not to instill fear in the hearts of Christians. Paul is sure that anyone who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and brought to true saving faith will continue in that faith. But he cannot be sure about the genuineness of all who profess faith. So this doesn't mean Christians can lose their faith, but it does mean, on the other hand, That those who aren't really regenerate, who make false professions of faith, have never received the benefits of Christ. They're counterfeits. Therefore, like the seeds sown on rocky ground, their faith is short lived. Having no roots, they fall away. So this isn't a question of whether you ever have doubts. You can have genuine doubts and genuine saving faith. That's not the issue. The issue is whether your faith is true. So for those with true faith who have apprehended the benefits of Christ through a wholehearted trust in him, what is the means of their perseverance? Is it a try really hard and you'll make it method? Is it a tap into the source of your inner strength method? No. Paul says those who continue in the faith are stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. This is architectural language, and again, it reminds us of the temple. If the Colossians remain stable and steadfast, if they continue in the faith, it's because they have been made living stones in this new and spiritual temple. Christ is their firm foundation. They have built their house on the immovable rock rather than the sandy and shifting foundation of their own self-analysis. So in the end, the focus of this condition, a real condition, is not on the probability of it being met Paul is certain that all true believers will continue in faith as they are preserved by the grace of God. Rather, Paul introduces this condition in order to call the true believers in Colossae to endure patiently and to weed out those pseudo believers who are causing trouble in their congregation. So that brings us through the end of the final verse of our passage. What have we seen tonight? Well, first, we've seen the majesty and supremacy of Christ in Paul's poem. Jesus is the sovereign king over the first creation and the new creation. And second, we've seen that Paul has applied those Christological truths to his hearers, the first century Colossian Christians. But how does this passage apply to us? I think the first and obvious answer is that it affects our worship. As we develop a fuller understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for us, our hearts are changed and we desire to worship him more and more. I think it's essential, then, that we understand the supremacy of Christ over all things in order to enrich our worship of him. We must also keep in mind that the doctrine of Christ was not just being attacked in the first century. We still face Christological attacks today. Some deny that Jesus rose bodily, claiming the resurrection is something that happens in our hearts as we Align ourselves with the teachings of the universal Christ. Some people try to mix the teachings of Jesus with those of other religions as if they're uh, customers at a religious buffet. But in Paul's poem here, we've seen that Christ is unique. None is like him, he has no equal. His person is unparalleled, and his majesty is unmatched. And this uniqueness of Christ points to the exclusivity of his gospel for salvation. So, brothers and sisters, we need the highest view of Christ we can get so that we may both worship him better and that we may be prepared to face the contemporary claims of pluralism and inclusivity. Well, second, I think we need to take to heart what Paul is saying in verses 21 through 23 as he shifts the focus from Christ to Christ's church. By introducing the condition, if indeed you continue in the faith, he's calling all believers to persist in their trust in Christ and in their belief of the gospel. Now, as we've said, this condition does not conflict with the accomplished work of Christ. Its function instead is to draw out the implications of being a new creature. Remember, Paul said that before we were reconciled, we were hostile in mind. Faith in Christ then, as one author puts it, involves a choice between different visions of reality. With a true and right vision of reality, you behold Christ in his full majesty. Recognize and submit to his kingship over all things and find yourself caught up into God's plan of cosmic reconciliation. But ultimately, we know that it is God who preserves us in our faith to the very end. He will continue to shape our whole hearts as we are fed by Christ through word and sacrament. Our minds will be renewed, our desires will be reshaped to strive for God's glory and for our neighbor's good, and our wills will be aligned to His. So how can we, sinful human beings, be sure that Christ will present us holy and blameless to God? Paul points us not to ourselves, but to Christ the image of the invisible God, the creator, the head of the church, the one who is preeminent over all. As new creations in him, we can all say these words with a grateful heart. Through Jesus' blood and merit, I am at peace with God. What then can daunt my spirit, however dark my road? My courage shall not fail me, for God is on my side. Though hell itself assail me, its rage I made deride. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for Christ, the one who is over all things, the Creator and sustainer of creation, the Mediator and King over new creation, the one who has reconciled us through the death of His body of flesh, in order to present us before You on that final day, holy. Blameless and above reproach. We thank you that as new creations and your own adopted children, we will remain stable and steadfast, not shifting from that beautiful good news which has been proclaimed to us. Preserve us by your grace all the way to the end that we may behold the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who is over all things. It is in his wonderful majestic and awesome name we pray. Amen. So, let us all stand once more.